This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. And with visions of sugar plums dancing in his head, Paul. Paul, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderfully. I am so much enjoying this time of year. Got another fresh dusting of snow last night. So it's just, yeah. I think we're on a cycle now, you know. It's just going to be <laughs> holiday every time we record. It'll be July and it'll still be snowing. <laughs> no, I'm oh, doing man. great. You'll, you'll, your, your mood will start to really plummet, yeah. I think, if that happens. <laughs> Might not have the same charm if it happened for that long. But right now I'm loving every minute of it. How are you doing? I am doing well. I I, I was having the one of those really frustrating dreams last night where I couldn't get where I was going and all of a sudden I like had a different cell phone that wasn't making outbound calls and the elevators were all broken like oh man and so I I woke up maybe I would have been groggy anyway but I'm just feeling extra groggy today so this is this is a good good pick-me-up I'm excited (laughs) nothing to get you going like talking books right that'll that'll perk you up quickly well, and especially this particular episode, and the one we'll be doing for the next uh, the next one here in a couple of weeks, we will release the second part of this. But this is our best books of 2023, Paul. This is our third annual year in review top ten two part episode, and I have a lot of fun with these. Even though it was a bear to put this list together this year, this is my hardest year to do this. I I think I had um, eighteen or nineteen books that I already felt were really well cut down. Yeah. I'm uh, in the same boat. It was it was a brutal year. It was fun, but also maybe that's where your stress dream came from, actually, is just trying that's to right. figure out All those the, last couple. The ghosts of the ones I let go haunting yeah. me. <laughs> exactly. That's probably exactly what it was. Now, I had the same deal. I probably had something similar. I, I think there was probably a good, yeah, eight or nine, probably about exactly the same that I had to cut out so it was rough but i feel good about my list (laughs) well and we've been we've been incredibly strict in years past that we we narrow it down to 10 and we do the hard thing of letting those books go so that we really kind of know what ones we're going to focus on Mm -hmm. rather than cheating and saying well here's my top 10 and here's my honorable mention list of 30 (laughs) yeah right which i easily could have filled i know it's mostly for me with typing out the show notes folks um you know i these are these these things can get a little bit out of hand so we're we're going to focus on 10 today is our 10 through 6 list mm-hmm. and we've got a bunch of listener feedback like we did uh, uh you know last year where we have uh friends and listeners and just folks who wanted to chip in and some of them did it with their own audio recording. Some of them did it by sending us an email. We are excited to share some of those. So I'm looking forward to that. And so you'll get both our 10 through 6 as well as others. Uh, and, and I mean, not to call them out too harshly, <laughs> but some of our listeners did not do the hard thing and narrow it down to their top book of the year. They they cheated, Paul. They did. Oh, there's definitely some cheaters out there, but we decided not to punish them this year. They're still included. <laughs> and honestly, as I'm reading through some of their picks, I can see why they had a tough time too. There's a lot of great books that are going to be introduced to everyone today. So yeah, we, always, we have throw notes, which is very important to go through. So you may not need a pencil and pen or a pencil or pen handy, but however you decide to do it, get ready. <laughs> 
Well, we certainly could have written him back and said, hey, can you narrow this to one? But we didn't really want to do that either. It's a, it, these are great lists, like you're saying. So. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Paul. We're going to just jump right into it. We'll be back with uh, what have you been reading in the new year mm-hmm. and some of the other preliminary items. Um, next week, we will announce the winner of our Dalkey Archive giveaway. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back to our previous episode on the Dalkey Archive. We are doing a giveaway on that. We've got some great entries. I'm looking forward to uh, picking that winner. But this week, we're going to let that go. We wanted to give listeners a little bit more time for that. But we also have a giveaway coming at the beginning of the year, um, a timely one for the month of January. That's right. We'll, we'll 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 get to that, but we're just going to get down to business today. I think we better. There's so many books. Like I said, we better get going. Paul, what's your number 10 book of the year? All right, here we go. My number 10 book of the year is one that I've talked about a little bit, but not too much. It's Eastbound by Milis de Carangal, translated from the French by Jessica Moore. Um, and as a reminder, that one comes out from Archipelago. And like I said, I did mention this one briefly back when we were talking, I think it was in April that I was reading it. And even before that, and especially since then, it's received a fair amount of publicity over the course of the year. And I would say very deservedly so. Um, this is one of those you know, beautiful little slim books from Archipelago that we talk about sometimes that you could easily read it in one sitting. Or it's also the type of book that certainly lends itself to you know taking your time because it's such a rich nuanced layered book that I think either either reading experience could probably serve you pretty well with it. Um, so it takes place on a trans-Siberian train that's just absolutely packed with Russian transcripts, including one of the two protagonists of the book. His name is Alyosha. And so we learn that Alyosha is really regretting his decision to enlist, and he's seriously considering deserting. Maybe a little late <laughs> for that, but that's that's his thought process. So while he's on the train and mulling over his options, he ends up striking up a conversation with an older French woman named Helene. And she has her own reasons for kind of running away from some of her past decisions. So they both have a whole lot going on internally as they're hurtling along on this train. Um, so despite their language barrier, they quickly manage to develop this mutual understanding and a pretty good relationship. And so he decides to go ahead and just ask her for help with his plan to figure out a way to desert. So as they begin to plot and strategize, um, you know, the pace keeps picking up and it kind of mirrors the train. You know, I think there's a lot to be said for reading it at a fast pace because it, you'd get this feeling that you're, you're hurtling across the plane with them on the train and things just become more and more tense as they begin to reckon with the impacts of how they're going to try to pull this off and, you know, the danger that it creates for both of them. Um, so on top of the fast paced plot and this fascinating relationship between Alyosha and Helene, the book is also just beautifully written. So I was just going to read a real quick passage that hopefully will give everybody a, a good idea of that. It says the train again, monotonous rolling, cyclical clicking, axles warming up, shrieks of metal. And if you listen close, you'd also hear like a tiny soundtrack woven into this hellhole, the torment of Alyosha's heart there back again in the compartment of the Trans-Siberian back in his spot next to the window, and once again hypnotized by the rails, the short portion of tracks that are illuminated for a fraction of a second by the train's rear lights, the whitish trail that closes space again immediately in its passage, relegating it to a zone behind, unformed and pulsating, delivering it to the amniotic dark of origins. So like I said, it's just, it's a one of those perfect blends. Um, a couple of my books this year are a really nice blend of, of plotting which is not necessarily something that I usually chase, 
but they have great plots, but it's not just that they have beautiful writing, you know, wonderful characterization and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, that's my number 10, nothing like kicking off a list with a little book from one of our favorite publishers, right? So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah. So how about you? What is your number 10, Trevor? Listeners, Paul and I did not preview each other's lists on purpose this year because we like the surprise. We like the serendipity and we, I, I mean, for me personally, I genuinely wanted to see what my 10 through one list would, would is without any outside influence. Yeah. My number 10 is Eastbound. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and boy. I promise I didn't just like go in and edit it. It wasn't oh, my number hilarious. eight and I moved it up to just be able to talk about it right now. <laughs> um, yeah. Eastbound. It's a, it's a beautiful book and it's short and it's, it's exciting and um, before we came in, I had already pulled up, you know, uh, a little quote myself. So I'm just going to to tag along with what you've got and read a little part. This is where Elaine has been asked, you know, can she can she can she help? Elaine smiles. She agreed to take Aliocha without hesitation, without even really weighing his request. And whether suspect ease or absence of discernment, it doesn't much matter. She felt overwhelmed by this young man, absolutely unique in the world, in the face of his request, and she who had reserved both bunks in the compartment so she might be alone with an opening into onto Siberia to remember and imagine. Two ways of seeing clearly. She had welcomed this stranger. She turns her eyes and lets them drift outside. What's done is done. You know, just this sense of being, uh, helping a stranger. I mean, uh, she could get into big trouble. I'm not, this is not a, you know, like you should always help someone who's flouting the law, you know, and and let them into your, your, you know, your compartment and then uh, assist them in escape, you know, from the authorities. (laughs) No. Um, But there is something uh, wonderful about her recognizing the situation and deciding that she will help and that it is going to be uh, hard on her. And yet she'll do it. Um, but yeah, this is a this is a, a really good... It's an interesting style. Um, very, very much a flow. You know, you could... You, you almost... I feel like it would be hard not to read... I'm sure I did read it in more than one setting, but at the same time... It's it's disruptive because this thing just it's like it like you said getting on a train and then you just go you don't mm-hmm. get off the tracks it doesn't stop you just keep on going uh, that's her, how her sentences flow too so Absolutely. yeah eastbound that's I, it's amazing. exciting yeah watch <laughs> we're gonna have the exact same top ten list well I don't I mean we could we could yeah. I don't know I, some of these I don't think you've read this year but then we'll be very surprised and that you know to be honest would still make a really interesting podcast episode. <laughs> I agree. I think it's true. Yeah, we're just in the, in the same zone. So, no, I think that's funny. And that book is deserving of several mentions. And, and like I said, mm-hmm. uh, I'm so glad that the passage you read highlighted a little bit more of the characterization because, it, again, not to repeat myself, but it's just that perfect blend. There's something yeah. for everyone in this book. So I, I would really encourage anybody who hasn't checked it out to do so. Yeah, and recently it was on like the New York Times best of list. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't checked it out, it you know clearly we both recommend it. But it, if you haven't checked out Archipelago Books, do yourself a favor and go and 
go and get this one mm-hmm. because the the format is is great. It's small. It just they, they know how to produce a beautiful book, and this is a text that's very deserving of of that kind of like special place, you know. So yeah, absolutely, there we go. I agree. All right, all right. You ready for my number nine? Yes. Let's see if it's what my number nine is. I mean, <laughs> it might I be. Think- I think we're else, safe. But... I think we're okay. Safe. So my number nine is The Sorrow of Others by Ada Zhang. And this is a book that came out from a public space books. This is one of the many wonderful reading experiences I had this year due to my judging for the Republic of Consciousness Prize. And I'm so glad that this prize has introduced me to so many you know, books, like I've said before, that I just never would have even heard about before. And this is one of them. A few months back, I did mention it briefly during one of our What Have You Been Reading chats. And even though I was really enjoying it at the time, you never know how something will age, you know, in your memory over time. Sometimes the book you're really loving in the moment, six months down the road, is is kind of fading away. But this is not the case for this one. Um, I think about this one a lot, and I felt like it was very deserving of a place on my end of the year list. Um, It's a short story collection that is described as being about, quote, people confronted with being outsiders as immigrants, revolutionaries, and even within their own families. So there's a lot of alienation in this book. Um, But as I mentioned before, it reminds me in a lot of ways of the works of Shumpa Lahiri because it does such an amazing job of capturing those details of the immigrant experience. Some of the characters are, you know, fairly new to the country that they've moved to. Some of them are more of like a second generation situation where they're having different adjustments, you know, dealing with more traditional parents, for example, while they're a little more well acclimated into their new society. So you get a wide range of of backgrounds, of ages, of characters, um, which considering that this is Ada Zhang's debut collection, I think just the depth and the breadth of her characters is even more impressive. Um, she does a really masterful job of capturing all these different voices and experiences and especially the stages of life where they are, which for a young writer to me is always so impressive that somebody who has not necessarily experienced, you know, different stages of their life can capture so well the viewpoints of different people. Um, and so speaking of that kind of age group, I was just going to read the beginning of a story called Compromise. And basically this is a story of a woman who's dealing with um, an estranged husband and, and just kind of this fallout of all of that while living in a country that's not necessarily her place of origin. So um, it says, I live alone in the house my husband left me. I work at, as the secretary of Royal Dental on Lamar Boulevard, a job I've had for about as long as I've been in the U.S., long enough to watch the practice pass from Dr. Baker, the original proprietor, to his son. I take in the mail and water my plants. On weekends, I prepare a meal whenever I get hungry, which is sometimes twice and sometimes four times a day, indulging a little in the absence of structure. I talk to my children on the phone whenever one of them thinks to call. I say hello to my neighbors, who are comforting to me in the same way that my house is, as guideposts in time, reminding me of who I am. I have known most of them for over 20 years. They're the closest I have to friends. When I wave to them from across our yard, I think how lucky I am to be standing at a distance, oblivious to the details of their lives, how they move inside their homes, and to not have to see their faces up close. A person's face is like a house, I think. The marks and stains and sunken places are proof of what has happened, but they cannot tell the whole story. And so, I don't know, hopefully that gives you a good example. I, I think this writing is just amazing. It, that's why I couldn't, as I was doing my debates about you know my 
cutting down my top 10 list, there was moments where I was wondering, like, with a few of these at the bottom, like, would this one work instead? But I just kept reading passages of this book. And I was like, there's no way this can't go on my list. It's, it's so gorgeous. So again, it's touching on all types of different life experiences. There's another example of a college student who, um, I don't think I mentioned this, but all of the backgrounds of these people are Chinese, you know, they're, they're either from China or their ancestry, you know, dates back to China. Um, and so there's a young college girl who decides to go rent a house with an older Chinese woman just to kind of get back in touch with her culture. And it's works in some ways, but there's also some interesting conflicts that arise there. You know, there's another one where it's like more of a, I think it's the passage I read during that earlier episode, a young daughter looking back on memories from her elementary school days when her father came to visit her at school. So it's just a wide range of really beautiful experiences. And even though there's a lot of alienation and loneliness, there's also a lot of warmth and humanity in this collection. So yeah, like I said, so thankful for the Republic of Consciousness Prize, putting this one on my radar. And I would like to spread the word and just get it out to as many people to check it out. So yeah, no, that one, I've looked into that one. I still haven't gotten it yet, Mm -hmm. but very glad to see that at least one at this point of those books has made it onto your top 10 list. I mean, that just shows that, you know, you guys aren't just pulling out some interesting books and trying to highlight some that otherwise wouldn't be highlighted because they're, you know, not, not just because of publicity and all of that or small, uh, small press that uh, doesn't get stocked in the big stores, but you're finding ones that, all of us should go out and pick up. So excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that'll be another tough weaning process I'll have soon when we're trying <laughs> to narrow it down to a long list because there's going to be a oh, lot of good boy. ones. So keep an eye out for that in the 2024. <laughs> All right. My next one, I believe it could show up on your list. So we'll see. Okay. But my number nine is Amina Kane's A Horse at Night on writing. Uh, this is something that she calls her her diary of fiction. And I love how she's it's, it's, it's almost a, a stream of consciousness. Uh, I'm writing things to explore, which could be pretty awful to subject readers to, except for this is beautiful and so insightful and so well done. And there were, you know, almost every page I'm highlighting, you know, line after line, after line, after line, because it's, it's so I don't know that there's, there's something beautiful about it. Um, I mean, and that's, that's what she's talking about. She's exploring and you get that sense of curiosity and of wisdom of someone exploring thoughtfully. And uh, she says, I write to see what is inside my mind. And that for me, it is often far better, healthier than recording what I know is already there. Uh, It's just, so much about writing, so much uh, examining what things that she has read and what has, you know, what reading does for her, what writing does for her um, on the, on the idea of like reading or even solitude, uh, which, you know, sometimes I think we can talk about quite often as the ideal state. And I really like how she puts it here. To be in favor of solitude is not to be against community or friendship or love. It's not that being alone is better. Just that without the experience of it, we block ourselves from discovering something enormously beneficial, perhaps even vital, to selfhood. 
Who are you when you are not a friend, a partner, a lover, a sibling, a parent, a child? When no one is with you, what do you do? And do you do it differently than if someone was there? It's hard to see someone fully when another person is always attached to them. More importantly, it's hard for us to see our own selves if we're not ever alone. And then, you know, on the short, shortly, you know, around that time, she'll also go, too much time alone is just as risky as not enough, for it allows us to sink into our cyclical patterns of thought and narrative. We need someone to hold up a mirror so we can see who we are when we are taken outside of our heads. We need to hear others' thoughts too. <laughs> and it's not like this is a whole book on, you know, this isn't a self-help book or a Brene Brown, like being alone is good, being, you know, with people is good. It's examining writing and registers of reading and and the, how place affects what we're reading and how what we're reading affects place. And and she goes over movies and books and, and talks about them and thinks about them. And it's all very short. Yeah. This is another one that we, you know, could read in in one sitting, and I I loved it so much. This is and it's very rereadable because there's so much in it, you know. So that's my number nine book of the year, and I still haven't gone on to read like Indelicacy, her novel. I I keep on putting it um, up to buy, like get, you know, saying okay, that's what I'm going to go buy. And then either the bookstore doesn't have it right then. Or something else just jumps out. I mm-hmm. I need to just do it because I'm very excited to read that one. Yeah, that's a wonderful pick. And no, even though it was definitely in contention, it would have been on my uh, honorable mention list if we were allowed to do those because I absolutely loved it. It was not on my final list. But I remember making this poor bookseller in Miami look all <laughs> over the store because their computer said they had a copy. And <laughs> There was a whole team scouring the entire bookstore to find that thing, and they finally did. Um, and yeah, I would agree. It's just such a wonderful little book. And like you said, it's, I know I say this a lot, but looking at how slim it is on the shelf, but then thinking about all my memories from reading it, it's amazing what she's able to do in such a tiny little book. Um, yeah. And like you said, the rereading thing, I was just thinking as you were reading that passage, I think I am due to reread that one. It could mm-hmm. already. Be, yeah, already. <laughs> so I'm so glad you picked that one. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, it's time for us to step back, you know, stretch, let other people do some of the, some of the heavy lifting, you know, we subject ourselves to by coming on and talking about books with each (laughs) other. You know, it's really, really tough, tough stuff, folks. Um, And uh, here we go. Why don't we start with some of the ones that we got uh, from listeners uh, that they wrote to us. So you'll hear for us uh, with one and then we'll share an audio clip. And then we've got a couple more that have written in, a couple more audio clips. We'll kind of uh, go back and forth. And then we'll get back to our, our our next ones on our list, our number eight and seven, and then take another little break to do to, to kind of round out this episode. We've got more, you know, in our back pocket for the next episode. So, you know, we're not we're not going through all of them uh, today. But Paul, I think you got the first one here. Am I right with that? Too. Yeah, this is from my friend Danielle, who reached out on Instagram and said, I don't hand out five-star reviews willy-nilly, but 2023 was a banner reading year for me with two, plus one that was very close. Rattlebone by Maxine Clare reminded me of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, the way it sneaks you into the lives of Kansas City's citizens. I also loved Trust by Hernan Diaz. I love the inventiveness of the format, particularly the final section 
when he colored in a character so well with so few words. Fire Rush by Jacqueline Crooks is another standout. I loved the language and setting, and I was wholly invested in the characters. Well, thank you, Danielle. Um, I agree. I'll echo on trust. I absolutely loved that book. I love both of Hernan Diaz's books so far. So I will put in another plug for that one as well. While I have them both, I still have not read them, but yeah. looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah. And I haven't read either of the other two either. So I haven't either, that... but they sound really good. I loved Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, so I might have to check out Rattlebone. And then uh, let's uh, let's play one from our, our friend, our friend uh, Neglected Books, or Brad Bigelow. Uh, Brad, take it away. Hi, guys. My read of the year is a novel from 1940 called Makeshift by a woman named Sarah Campion. It's a book I found on the Internet Archive, and it's extraordinarily rare other than being available on the Internet Archive. There's something like 18, 19 copies in libraries worldwide and literally just two copies in libraries in the U.S. And what I really like about the novel is it's the story of a German Jewish woman, uh, Charlotte, who uh, starts in 1919, right after the end of World War I, with all the disruptions and economic hardships that Germans experienced. And it takes her in Germany up till uh, the early 30s with the rise of the Nazis and after it becomes obvious that Germany is not a place for Jews to hang around. Uh, she leaves and she starts a long journey that takes her to England, to South Africa, to Australia, and finally she ends up in New Zealand. Uh, Throughout that process, she ends up having to, uh, I mean, she encounters a variety of people. Uh, she's going without family. She's uh, a single woman in her 30s. Uh, she's done some things in her life which are probably less than um, admirable. Uh, she's very honest. Uh, she uh, is willing to put herself ahead of uh, what society wants her to do. And um, she... Her narrative voice is, is one that's fascinating. You, you don't necessarily admire her, but you definitely uh, want, to, you want her to keep telling her story. Anyway, it was a book that uh, I, when I wrote about it back in March, I said it was probably my top read of the year so far, and it certainly stayed there. And I liked it so much that I uh, sought out Sarah Campion's uh, uh, son to find out if we could get the rights for to reissue the book as part of the recovered book series that I edit for Boiler House Press in the UK. And he was happy to do that. And uh, so I'm very happy to say that we have uh, lined up the book to be reissued uh, in 2025. It'll be the first time the book's been available since uh, 1940. Uh, it was never published in the U.S., and so it's become really utterly unknown, and I'm really hoping that uh, folks will enjoy it as much as I did. Yeah, thank you, Brad. Um, I had the pleasure of working my way through Joseph and his brothers with a group of people this year, as I've talked about, and Brad was actually one of those. So I got to know him much better this year and it was an absolute pleasure. And I just wanted to give a shout out to all the wonderful work he does of, of doing what so many of us try to do and just uncovering some of these books that never would have been 
you know, out in the public consciousness before. And I'm really excited about the book he mentioned. I'm going to be keeping an eye out for that one. Um, and he may just come up again later on <laughs> in one of these episodes. So thanks, Brad. Ooh, okay. Excellent. Good to hear. All right. Well, I will go back and read um, read another one. This is from longtime listener Bill Martini. Said, uh, And I, I really like his approach here. He says, This year, I decided to read Women Authors Only from January through December, and it has been a great adventure. While I read some great books this year, uh, and then he, he gives some honorable mentions. Uh, fine, fine, I'll do it, and I'll type these out. <sighs> Love. I mean, it's because Love was has been a favorite of ours, you know, oh. by Hannah Ostrovic. Foster by Claire Keegan, Women Talking by Miriam Toes, and Five Little Indians by Michelle Good. I think the top slot would go to Trieste by Dasa Derndig. Or I don't know how to, if it's Derndich or, you know, but Dasa Derndich. And translated from the Croatian by Ellen Elias Bursat. The way Derndich is able to avoid cliche and overt sentimentality in dealing with the fraught subject of the Holocaust alone is a feat. But then her technique of collage, photos, trial transcripts, biographical sketches, witness statements, etc., calls out to the best in Sebald. But for me, it is the list of victims she inserts in the middle of the narrative, page upon page of names that functions on a couple levels. The sheer length of the entry, of course, harkens to the level of horror faced by the Jews in Italy, but it also presents a moral quandary for the reader. Do you skip or skim the list? It was 44 pages in my book to get back to the narrative. And if you do, are you complicit in a kind of ignoring or minimizing by refusing to look at each name? It was a moment in my reading that struck me deeply and one I won't likely ever forget. Thanks again for the wonderful podcast. And I look forward to hearing your lists. Yeah, you, that was on your list last year, I believe. It Paul. was. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he did a wonderful job of summing up everything that saying you love a book like that is kind of hard to say, because I don't know if that's the right word, but respect or or whatever the case may be. But yeah, that 44 pages of names. Oh, I remember having a very similar experience where part of you is tempted to just kind of buzz through them because it's 44 pages of names. But to his point, you want to add that respect and think about what is actually taking place there. So it was yeah, profoundly mm. moving. And I'm so glad he added that book. It's, it's an amazing book. So. All right. Well, we've got another audio clip from a returning uh, friend of the show, Rods yeah. Pandit. She, she sent in her uh, recommendation last year and I was so excited that she wanted to do it again this year. So here we go. Hello everyone, this is Raj Pandit from Mumbai, India. I go by the same name on Twitter. Thanks again Trevor and Paul for having me back on your wonderful podcast. So, my favorite book of 2023 is Maeve Brennan's The Springs of Affection, a stunningly crafted short story collection. The book is divided into three parts and the first section is possibly more cheery of the lot comprising autobiographical sketches of Brennan's childhood in Dublin. But then we move on to the highlight of this collection, the Durden batch of stories focusing on the marriage of Rose and Hubert Durden, which even William Maxwell in his introduction described as some of her finest stories. The six Durden stories are savage and heartbreaking 
in their depiction of an unhappy marriage. We witness the loneliness, bitterness and misunderstandings encompassing more than 40 years of the couple's married life. Each story unflinchingly examines the nuances of their relationship from different angles and perspectives, always focusing on the growing alienation and resentment between the couple. What also makes these stories remarkable is how the reader's loyalties towards Rose and Hubert keep shifting. They are tragic and frustrating in equal measure. Yet, despite being such flawed individuals, it is hard not to feel for them. The last section focuses on the marriage of Martin and Delia Baggett. These stories are not as fierce as the Durden Bunch, but are still sensitively rendered sketches of an unhappy marriage. While the titular piece, The Springs of Affection, then astute, razor-sharp character study of a spiteful woman, very much unlike the relative gentleness of the previous Baggett stories. So, the stories in Springs of Affection are quietly devastating, perhaps even bleak, but they are thrilling to read because of Brennan's psychological acumen and exquisite writing. I highly, highly recommend it. All right, Paul. Another one that I don't... I, I, while well, I've, I've heard about it, and I, I do remember reading a little bit about it this year with uh, when Rods was, was talking about it on some of her social media sites, I don't know that book. I don't either, but hearing her description, it sounds like it's right up my alley, you know, a, a little dark and, and all that stuff, but it just sounds absolutely wonderful. <laughs> so yeah, that's another great addition. Thank you, Rods. All right, let's do one more of each then. If you want to read one, and then we'll, we'll do one more uh, audio clip. Uh, before we get back to our list. Okay, our next one comes from our friend and the wonderful poet and author, Elisa Gabbert, who actually wrote one of my top books from a couple of years ago, The Unreality of Memory. So we were excited to have her join us. And she says, The Infatuations by Javier Marias, translated by Margaret Huel Costa. I deeply enjoyed this novel as a vessel for interesting thinking on life and death, truth and belief, contingency and inevitability, fear and hope, desire and frustration. It was perfect to read at the same time as Adam Phillips missing out via meditative monologues presented as dialogue or presented as thought, a non-realist style that almost approaches literary criticism. There is much discussion of Macbeth, Balzac's Le Colonel Chabert, The Three Musketeers, and so forth, and introduces a kind of unreliability I always think of Cuskian or Sibaldian, where all speech is reported via a first-person narrator and therefore everyone sounds like the narrator or is bent through the narrator's prism. I love the way Marius's novels quote themselves and the way he handles work. The narrator here, Maria, works in, quote, the idiotic world of publishing, unquote, which enables Marius to get in many jabs at writers. And then she gives a quote, we cannot know what time will do to us with its fine, indistinguishable layers upon layers. We cannot know what it might make of us. One of my very favorite writers. They should have given him the Nobel Prize. I know that one will make you happy, Trevor, because you're a huge Maria's fan. I am working yeah. my way up to becoming one. So far, so good. Yeah, I do. I love Maria's. I'm excited for us to do our show on on his books, and and we kind of told listeners we'll we'll get to him very soon, and I I think we will still, but I think both of us have a desire to to get deeper into his work. I mean, I've read most of them, but I. Some of them I wanted to reread, and you wanted to catch up. And uh, mm-hmm. thanks to listener support, we were able to get you quite a nice little collection to, no. to go through. Um, I'm excited it. about that. And so we, we're going to do that one right. 
um, and relatively soon, but yeah. we want to do it right. So, <laughs> all right, well, let's listen to one more listener submission. Uh, this is from Ethan LaFontaine and, you know, he cheats a little bit, does, does it gives us a couple of, of, of options, um, neither of which I've read though. And so thank you. And, uh, we'll, we'll be back in just a second. First and foremost, love this podcast. Haven't found anything else like it that gets me excited to read and discover new books like you two. So thank you both. Secondly, I'm going to cheat your prompt in two ways. One by not focusing on my actual favorite book I read this year, Song of Solomon, because everybody already loves Tony and others will be able to talk about this book far better than I could. Uh, And I'm also going to give you two books. One, America Fantastica by Tim O'Brien. It's a really clever, Heller-esque, Odyssey-style, absurdist novel that's a little frightening. Uh, A little bit of an in-the-moment kind of book, and nothing at all like the things they carried, Uh, but I I really loved it. Number two, uh, Kindred by Rebecca Rag Sykes, not the one by Octavia E. Butler. This is a nonfiction examination of everything we know about Neanderthals and how scientists figured this stuff out. I feel like some of the discussions about studying smoke patterns in ancient caves and extracting information from sifted bone fragments to be almost more interesting than the Neanderthals themselves, just really captivating and really puts into perspective how much there is to learn about human evolution. Just really great book. Thanks, guys. Well, all right, Paul. I hope you had a nice little little rest just responding to others. And uh, now it's time for you to get back. Give us your number eight. All right, I am ready. So my number eight is The Birthday Party by Laurent Mauvignier, translated from the French by Daniel Levin-Becker. And this one came out from Transit Books. So yeah, this is actually another one that um, I I read it before um, I started doing my reading for the Republic of Consciousness Prize, but then it was one of the submissions. So I actually got a chance to think about it again. And Another book that has received a fair amount of attention this year, including being included on the 2023 International Booker Long List. And again, like I said, well-deserved for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. The words I jotted down to describe it as I was reading it were propulsive and claustrophobic. Um, So this book is part mystery, I would say, part crime story, and just also very literary and beautifully written. Um, People are noticing some themes here that won't shock them for me. So... It's set in a remote village in rural France that's called Three Lone Girls. And most of the book really just takes place here and specifically in just a couple of houses in this little tiny village that are occupied by a few characters, Patrice, his wife, Marion, their daughter, Ida, and their neighbor, Christine, who's an artist. And those, you know, for the most part, make up the majority of of the characters. Um, So as things kick off, Patrice is planning a surprise for his wife's 40th birthday, but as we're kind of following him around town and getting to know the village and the characters, we start to be introduced to some darker things that are going on in the background, including some anonymous and threatening letters. And there's some strange cars that start appearing in their little neighborhood that everybody's noticing that, you know, in in a neighborhood like that, it's, it's noticeable because, you know, they've just not seen this around before. So the entire book, which is more than 400 pages of, I will say, very tiny prose, (laughs) my only criticism maybe is it was a little bit of an eye strainer, but I mean, it is a lot of language in this book, but it basically takes place in one day and it's just filled with this building tension and this unsettling feeling that just keeps growing and growing. So that claustrophobia is occasionally dispersed a little bit 
because we shift from one character's point of view to another from time to time. And so you get a little short chance to breathe, um, but not much. Um, but again, all this is handled really masterfully by the author. And so again, I just wanted to, to read a little bit here. This is um, through the the eyes of one of the characters when I told you there starts to be some people they don't recognize showing up in, in the village and giving them kind of, you know, a little bit of an eerie feeling. And it says, she sees her dog at the door, ears perked up, alert as he rises, straightens, barks, and without any further thought, she goes to open the door for him. The dog shoves her, forces his way past her, yelps again as he crosses the yard at full speed diagonally, like he knows where he's going. And he does know, that's clear, right for the stable. Christine is surprised. He doesn't usually go in a single direction with such determination. Instead, Raja usually goes toward the exterior of the house in the hamlet, crossing the gate that's always open. He runs to the end of the stony path, sometimes venturing into the surrounding fields, but never all that far, returning quickly, not taking too long, wandering in the yard or anywhere else. He's too old for that. Except this time, he doesn't wander. Is he, hun is he hunting something? Ears perked up out of curiosity? Or tracking a target he wants to reach? taking care not to scare it off by arriving too quickly. Christine watches him slow down as he reaches the stable. He watches, stays still, pointing, even though he's not a pointer. What he's doing, what he's waiting for, watching, she can't see. He goes into the stable. She doesn't have time to wonder whether he'll come right back or take a while longer over there. Anyway, in a moment, she's not thinking at all. She forgets all of that, her attention diverted by the car she sees, coming up the path and entering the yard. A car she doesn't recognize pulls in and makes a full turn to park right in front of her, ready to leave again. She has time to think to herself that it's odd that Raja doesn't come back toward the car. He must have heard the engine. He usually goes crazy as soon as a car shows up here, especially an unfamiliar car like this one, for all Christine, er, whose driver still hasn't turned off the engine, even though he's coming to a stop, as though he's looking for something on the passenger seat. She barely has time to wonder what time it is, to think that she doesn't like being bothered before the guy cuts the engine. And gets out of the car so like i said i that is just kind of a good little snippet that gives the idea of just you don't quite know what's going on at some point you know a little more than the characters do at other points you're kind of in the dark with them but this <laughs> book is just such a perfect blend of, of plot mystery character development and that beautiful writing that it's a another page turner um so this is a very plotty year for me so far but with the caveat <laughs> that they're just also very literary and beautifully written books so i forget did you read that one yet yeah yeah that was uh one of the first books i i read over in the in the year mm. and I, I i would venture to say that some people might disagree with you about that being super plotty mm. um when the plot could be i mean it's definitely something pulling you because you have questions about what's going on mm -hmm. uh, for sure so i'm not trying to say you're wrong but there is so much else um, that oh, yeah. takes you away from the plot. You know, so much going into these characters' heads over sometimes seemingly, you know, not irrelevant, but like, why are we digging? Like, there's something exciting about to happen. Why are we digging down? Because it actually reminds me of Marius, like in Your Face Tomorrow. Uh, I don't think you've read this yet, but there is a segment in, I think, book two, where he goes into a bathroom and sees a guy with a sword about to, to drop his sword on somebody, you know, like swinging it down. It takes hundreds of pages for that sword to come down because Marius keeps on going on these little tangents about what the characters are thinking or doing, or, you know, little stories that it leads to. And that's how this one is just, you know, 
it, it can really just take you on a, on a little rabbit uh, hole uh, search. And I love how you called it claustrophobic um, because I've, I think that, I think that this is a book that I like that it's small print on, you know, there's no room on these pages for anything else. And I actually kind of liked that while reading it, but couldn't put my finger on it. And I think it's because it emphasizes or underlines that mood. So nicely done. Yeah. Definitely a contender for my, for my list as well. It was one of the last ones that I finally said, Oh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'll go with these and then, you know, that one, that one got other prizes. We'll, we'll be okay if I, right. if we don't go there. <laughs> well, that's good. It's just like a horse at night. We are covering yep. a few that are falling off the list of the other ones. Yes. So I'm glad. And yeah, that's a really good point about it is like you said, plotty, but with a few asterisks to that yes. <laughs> description. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yes. All right, Paul. Uh, time for my number eight, if you're ready. You ready for this? I think so. All right. I have a... I, I promise I didn't do this just for tradition's sake, but my number eight is a book by Brandon Sanderson. Nice. <laughs> I was hoping he'd make the list. Well, so this was the year of Sanderson. This is big Kickstarter where he released uh, four books that he wrote over, you know, over lockdown. And... Three of them kind of take place in the same universe as his other big series. Um, And they're all building, you know, they're all kind of part of the same story. These are like little side stories uh, that I I just, I just really, really love them. And uh, one of them was not part of that series. And it was the weakest for me. I didn't really like it very much, but the other three, I thought each were really good. My favorite and one that was just, so exciting, very plotty, you know, much, I, I will say a little more plotty than uh, the books that we've said um, <laughs> so far, but in such a fun way is called The Sunlit Man. And it kind of takes place in the future of the, of this, the, the Cosmere, you know, from the books that we're reading now. And it's a character that we have met and spent some time with uh, in, in some of the books we've already read. And this is him who knows how far in the future, you know, he, he's gotten something that's probably extended his life quite well. And he goes by a different name. His name is Zellian in this. And he is the sunlit man, you know, as, as the story goes on, but he, he has been on the run um, from a, you know, kind of a mercenaries who are, who are chasing him that have their own fun little backstory that we kind of wonder about and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, as he runs from planet to planet, he often will get to these planets um, by just like, boom, skipping, you know, kind of, he gets to just zip out, but he has to have a lot of energy to do so. And that usually means that he, he's, he skips to another planet and then has to spend time trying to figure out how can I, you know, get energy here? What, what can, so that I can leave again, you know, his main goal is just to run, 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 run. And then he lands on this planet that is really close to its sun and rotates, you know, um, around. If you are on the day side, essentially it's burning up the ground as the sun gets there. So dusk is, you know, a, a great place to be because the sun is, is going to take some time to get around to you. But dawn is horrible because you got to run. So <laughs> the whole thing of him running is emphasized again, just by the way the planet fits and, and works. 
And there are other reasons to run on this planet. You know, people are fighting over resources and it's, it's pretty exciting still and, and, and touching. And, you know, I just really enjoyed it from the first page to the end. I, it's propulsive, you know, all of that. I, I really had a great time with this book and that's why I wanted to bring it up on here. You know, it's not a book for newbies because it's, he he said a few years ago he's going to take the gloves off and you know he, while while he likes to make standalones that people can just come in and read and one of them that he that you know was pretty pretty far up there in my year's favorite is Tress of the Emerald Sea that's one that still takes place in all this kind of universe but that you could read without knowing anything else and maybe you'd miss some things but you would still enjoy the story this one I think you'd miss too much mm-hmm. and. So unfortunately, it is one that I think pays off its best dividends if you've already read pretty much everything else that's going on with it. Uh, but yeah, it really does pay those dividends quite high. It's it's fun. It's well done. It's exciting. A lot of the themes going you know going with it. And my my son who is is twelve has been starting to read these. He's read. Oh five or six. He finished one last night, you know, not, not this one, not this particular one, but in this whole big long series. And uh, that's been fun to to have somebody that I can, you know, kind of sit and talk to who's going through it for the first time. And uh, last night when he finished, I didn't, I've, he actually read one that I haven't finished myself, uh, Warbreaker. And I was like, Oh, did you love it? Yeah. I really liked it. Did it make you cry? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, don't ask me those questions, dad. <laughs> it's too fresh. So I will tell you, if the, if you get on the wavelength with these, they are, they are pretty, pretty fun, you know, pretty that's fun. Cool. And, and I love having a book like this in my, that that's so good that it's in my top 10. And, you know, while not the, you know, might feel like the odd fish um, in this, in this bunch of books, but still we're just talking about, the love of reading and the various reasons that we love reading. And this one is oh, yeah. absolutely deserving of, of being on this list. So no, I think it's very deserving. And I'm, I'm really glad that you continue to, to bring up those books because I know how much joy they bring you. And I think it's really cool that I think if I'm not mistaken, like your brother likes them, other people yeah. in your family like them. And it's yeah. cool to hear that it's now that love is passing on to the next generation. That's pretty exciting. So yeah. Yep. Cool. <laughs> well, I'm glad he made the list. Um, are we on to my number seven? Number seven, yes. Okay. So my number seven is Open City by Teju Cole. Um, again, I, I feel like a few of them this year I've actually have talked about at least briefly during some of our previous episodes during the What Have You Been Reading? Um, so hopefully people you know aren't tired of hearing about them. But this is another one that I, I mentioned earlier how it's always interesting when a book hits you really well when you're reading it, but then you know months or years later, to see how it kind of weathers. And I was looking in this one, I actually listened to it clear back in February of this year. Um, but yeah, instead of fading, if anything, it's kind of grown in my mind. I, I think about this one a lot too. Um, I love so many things about it. For one thing, it's very much a book about walking, which ticks one of my major boxes. I'm um, something I'm always fascinated with. And in this particular case, he's walking around Manhattan in New York City. Um, and he being the narrator, Julius, who's a psychiatrist who's training in Manhattan. Um, And he's of German and Nigerian descent, which is important to note just because this is a very fascinating book culturally and internationally speaking, because even though he's walking around New York, he's very much, 
you know, having conversations with people from all kinds of backgrounds, which is one of the other things I really love about it. Um, so, you know, because of his background, he's fascinated by the city, but he also has a little bit of a separation from it where he's able to look at it and see it maybe with a clarity that people who were born and raised there might not have, which I think is really interesting. So there's a couple of short descriptions I'll read as I go through, but one of the things that he does is describe the city so beautifully. And here he's talking about Manhattan and he says, this strangest of islands, I thought, as I looked out to sea, this island that turned in on itself and from which water had been banished. The shore was a carapace, permeable only at certain selected points. Where in this riverine city could one fully sense a riverbank? Everything was built up in concrete and stone, and the millions who lived on the tiny interior had scant sense about what flowed around them. The water was a kind of embarrassing secret, the unloved daughter, neglected, while the parks were doted on, fussed over, overused. So you get wonderful descriptions like that of of the place, And then we also come to find out, you know, he's on the rebound from a a relationship, which is another thing that comes up often as he's walking around the city and thinking. Um, But as he's walking, he, like I said, he he runs into all kinds of fascinating people during his ramblings. You know, there's this Liberian person who's been in prison for more than two years in a detention facility in Queens. He runs into a Haitian person who's doing shoe shining in Penn Station. There's a Moroccan student who works at an internet cafe in Brussels who goes on some really, you know, interesting um, political rants. So on top of all the walking aspects, you're getting these conversations with a number of fascinating people that just gives a really good insight into different people's lives and experiences. So here's another one of those sections where he's talking to somebody and it says, he too was in the grip of rage and rhetoric. I saw that attractive, though his side of the political spectrum was. A cancerous violence had eaten into every political idea, had taken over the ideas themselves. And for so many... All that mattered was the willingness to do something. Action led to action, free of any moorings. And the way to be someone, the way to catch the attention of the young and recruit them to one's cause was to be enraged. It seemed as if the only way this lure of violence could be avoided was by having no causes, by being magnificently isolated from loyalties. But was that not an ethical lapse graver than rage itself? So I liked that, you know, quote, just as as giving a different perspective on the way this works, there's a lot of like philosophical thoughts. It's, it's a thinker's book. You know, there's lots of art and photography and, and books on top of the beautiful descriptions. Um, and, and again, like I said, lots of references to art, music, photography, literature. So I won't, I'll just read one more quick short passage. I know that I'm reading a lot of passages today, but I do think it's a good way to give a taste of some of these books. So he says, we have for too long been taught that the sight of a man speaking to himself is a sign of eccentricity or madness. We are no longer at all habituated to our own voices, except in conversation or from within the safety of a shouting crowd. But a book suggests conversation. One person is speaking to another. An audible sound is, or should be, natural to that exchange. So I read aloud with myself as my audience and give voice to another's words. And I just thought that was another beautiful passage. So hopefully between those three, it gives you a a good idea of just the range of this book. This is one that I just, like I said, I I think about it all the time. I'm so happy that I stumbled onto it and I look forward to exploring more of his works. I did read his most recent one this year also. And while it was really good, it didn't quite reach the levels of this one for me, but I look forward to kind of spending more time with Teju Cole in the future. Yeah, that's one of my favorites from some time back was when I read it. Mm-hmm. And nice to revisit it with your with your thoughts there yeah. and those passages. All right. So my next one uh, is 
one of the earliest books that we read for the NYRB Women 23 hashtag nice. that Kim McNeil put together. Uh, this is Olivia Manning's School for Love. I think published in 1951, it takes place in 1945 in Jerusalem. It kind of opens on a wintry Jerusalem. There's snow in Jerusalem. It's kind of a fun little atmospheric uh, opening. But what we have here is a young man. He's, you know, he's a minor, and he has been recently orphaned when his mom died of typhoid. And so he, his father had also died within about a year uh, it, because of you know, some, some, some things happening, uh, with, uh, disturbance in the war. And, uh, he had been in Baghdad and gets sent to Jerusalem where he has a kind of an aunt, Miss Bohan, that, uh, I don't know if you, if you read this one or if not, you probably heard us all kind of talking about Miss Bohan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she is. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to read it, but I did. I do remember that conversation. She is quite the character. In fact, when the book starts, um, there's a little passage that whenever his father had suggested a trip to Jerusalem, his mother had said, oh, no, dear, not there. We'd have to see Ethel Bohan. I couldn't bear it. (laughs) (laughs) So here he is orphaned now, and he gets sent there because she's got a little bit of space. Um, He's got money. You know, his father was was killed, and so he he is getting some support and money. And he has like an uncle in, in England, but he just can't quite get there. Um, but he's basically at a boarding house in Jerusalem and he has these relationships with the other tenants, but all of them, their, their little struggles with Miss Bohan and her intentions to do good, um, which, you know, are very self-serving kind of good. It's, it's, this is a fantastic, uh, little bit of a, it's funny, but also, you know, a little bit sad and can, can seem a little bit twisted at times. Um. I, I I loved the you know the the Balkan trilogy and the Levant trilogy, the Fortunes of War uh, compendium. Uh, Olivia Manning um, put together in the NYRB Classics is also published. I kind of think I liked School for Love even more. Wow. I just really really enjoyed this 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 novel and Felix kind of starting to understand things, putting things together, trying to figure out. Well, now that I do, what do I do with this knowledge? Am I even right? You know, I am going to get, um, in order to make a stand, I'm going to have to, you know, have some courage, but also say some things that are, are impolite or, you know, things like that. I'm trying to figure out how do you deal with all this kind of stuff. So very, a very good one. I definitely think that, uh, you know, when you get to it, you will enjoy this one, Paul. Yeah. I'm trying to remember why I didn't read that one. I, I don't know if at that point, maybe I didn't own it yet. Cause I just checked and I do have it now. So that, that is a mystery that I cannot solve for myself, actually, <laughs> because I loved, loved, loved both of those trilogies. And in fact, I think I cheated in a previous year and kind of glommed them <laughs> into my top 10 list. Um, yeah, she is so good at the, like the scope of the world and, mm-hmm. and pulling out and, and giving you these international views of, of different cities and countries and things like that. But then also zooming way in on people's interior lives and relationships. I mean, she is just an absolutely amazing author. To hear you say that you might like this one even better than those others, that really gives me a little added motivation to pick it up soon. And I'm so happy that you got one of the NYRB women um, oh, yeah. books yeah. on your list. And and I would not be shocked if a few, at least one or more of those 
don't pop up again later. <laughs> Excellent. Um, before we get to any any other ones, though, let's get back to some um, uh, suggestions from others. And uh, we'll start again with the, with one to read. I'll go ahead and do this if, if you don't mind, Paul. That sounds great. I, Paul, Paul has helpfully put all of this together. And so even though I'm like, is that okay, Paul? He, he's, he's, he's instructed me on the document to read this one, Trevor. <laughs> I learned from Kim McNeil the, the power of uh, organization. There you go. <laughs> uh, this is from our friend Ubersench on Twitter. And he says, uh, first off, sorry for sending this so late. Crazy day. No problem. You know, we, we got it and you're in our first episode. You know, didn't even have to delay it for the next one. Uh, it says, my favorite book of the year was Ex-Wife by Ursula Parrott. Originally published in 1929, this best-selling sensation was reissued by McNally Editions earlier this year. Too much acclaim. Absolutely. Uh, The novel begins as a marriage ends, following our newly divorced protagonist Patricia through the many shallow joys of Jazz Age New York. However, just behind the excitement of parties and the dating scene lurk the haunting realities of sexual assault, abortion, and the deep loneliness of unrequited love. We follow along as Patricia works through her pain and matures in such a way that can only make you feel proud and convinced that happiness is just around the corner. I found myself frequently questioning how this novel could be essentially forgotten despite its incredibly fresh style, literary virtuosity, and continued relevance. I find great joy in connecting with an older work, especially those that have been off the radar and not well known. I usually find many examples like this issued by NYRB Classics, but McNally Editions is quickly becoming another great resource for literature that deserves a second look. Thank you, Paul and Trevor, for letting me share and for giving us such a wonderful podcast. Well, thank you. Um, I This is one of the McNally editions I have not read yet. Um, I have it, but I have not read it. I definitely see, I've, I've seen it come up so often over the year. It's not for lack of, of wanting to. And it, it isn't even one of those where I'm like, well, the, you know, the, the hype might be too big. I just need to get to it. I'm excited about it. No, I'm in the same boat, and I just want to echo what he said about McNally Editions. They have been just an absolutely wonderful addition to the publishing landscape. And, you know, I read, it didn't quite make my list, but it was an honorable mention, but I read The the, the Feast by Margaret Kennedy earlier this year, which they had put out mm-hmm. and just absolutely loved it. And like you said, I have a stack of, of more of their books that I'm really looking forward to and hope to get to very soon. Yeah, they just un- unveiled their, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, just including the one that Uberzench just mentioned. It sounds mm-hmm. absolutely wonderful, and I do have that one too. And they just unveiled their slate for next year. Oh, I haven't oh, seen that yet. Man, it looks so good. It looks so good. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Well, our next uh, uh, audio recording is from Kaya Strominus. Well, she introduces herself and, um, you know, long, very much appreciate all that she does for uh, uh, books and translation and open letter books. So thanks so much for sending this in, Kaya. Here we go. This is Kaya Strominus, translator from the Latvian and editor at Open Letter Books. And my top read of 2023 is The Blind Assassin by Margaret Atwood. This is a book that was published in 2001. I read it at the very beginning of this year, and it is dark and twisty and sexy and fusty and feels like it lives under a layer of dust and grime 
but it's so fresh at the same time. And it is a book that I would definitely recommend everybody read, um, especially if you're conflicted about Margaret Atwood's writing like I am. And it will give you chills for months and years to come. All right. Do you have any thoughts on on that one? Yeah. Like you said, thank you so much, Kaya, for everything you do and you and Chad do for Open Letter and and other things. And also, I just wanted to echo what she said. It's very interesting because I've had a similar relationship with Margaret Atwood, a little bit conflicted. Mm -hmm. And so the things that she said there make me tempted. I don't know if I'll do it, but it makes me tempted to read it (laughs) because I'm always afraid to write off an author that obviously means so much to so many people. So I, I found that one a very fascinating recording. Well, and this is one of hers that I did read and, and really liked. I, yeah. I've read, you know, quite a handful of, of Margaret Atwood's books. And this one, I would I would agree with Kaya, is uh, one that I was excited about and not conflicted over. <laughs> nice. Well, you may have won me over then. All right. You want to go on with our next one? Yeah. So our next one comes from our friend Audrey, also known as Dries Reads. She says, hi, Trevor and Paul. I'm not really clear if you were looking for our best read of the year or our top 10. My reading has been drastically reduced this year. I'm not 100% sure why. Full-time job for one and a half years. Yay. A great winter hiking season. Yay. A successful veggie gardening year. Yay. And major chicken coop renovations. Phew. (laughs) Yeah, I think we can all relate to life gets in the way sometimes. And I do, but Um, I do love the year in review there. That is fun. I do too. That's fun. Yeah. Um, so she says, I don't think I could necessarily pick a top 10, but she gives us her top read of the year, which, which was Georgi Gospodinov's Time Shelter. Such a very good book. So much to think about and just so well done, writing and translating. I think about it often. It is everything I love about literature. Clearly fiction, but relates to current events. Historical, but is not history and does not pretend to be history. But having an understanding of history makes it so much better. He is speaking to current events. I cannot even explain why I love this book so much. It is just so well done on so many levels. It is also fairly depressing for all the same reasons, but I love a downer. So there you go. Um, And she says, thank you for the podcast. I have a routine of listening to your new episodes every Thursday. I get Thursdays off, so take a five-mile walk every morning and listen when there's a new episode. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Audrey. That is a great Mm -hmm. choice. And he is one that I have a couple of his books, but I've not yet read them. What about you? No, I I just ordered um, this one and looking forward to it coming. Uh, but the Boxwalla had an amazing sale, Paul. Oh, I saw uh, that. All of their books um, that they had were nine ninety nine, <sighs> including like this one in hardback. And yeah, so this is one that I ordered. Yeah, I went to snatch up. Um, a couple of them that you highlighted and some of them were already sold out, which I was bummed about, but that was an amazing sale. And I have the physics of sorrow by him. I knew I had one. I couldn't remember. What yeah. It was oh, I have read that one. That's right. Okay. No, I have read the physics of sorrow. Really, yeah. really like that one. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of open letters. So yeah, I'm looking <laughs> forward to digging in. That's a great pick. So thank you very much. Audrey. All right. Well, I think Mark, you know, uh, Mark Haber, our next guest, he does introduce himself, but it's just a few words. Last year, I cheated and put two of his books on my top 10 list at number one. And next year, he's got another one coming out. I, you know, Lesser Ruins. I I get little little things from him where, he, you know, he tells me how exciting it is to see this mock-up or that thing coming. And I'm yeah. like, <laughs> you know what? I'm so excited for you. And I'm excited for us to be able to to read it. Um, 
and hopefully sooner than later we'll have that in our hands. But I'm excited to hear about Mark's top read of the year. He gives us a few other little bonus ones here at the beginning, but I'm excited um, about his reasoning for his his favorite book of the year. So here we go. Hi, this is Mark Haber, and I'm going to talk about my favorite book of the year uh, for Moogs and Gripes. And um, before I do that, I'm going to make two slight exceptions and talk about two contemporary novels. Um, simply because uh, being a writer, I, I always want to try and... Um, uh, you know, support and encourage people to read books by authors that are alive. And these are two amazing books. So um, the guest lecture by Martin Riker came out really early in the year. Um, and it's an incredible, moving, profound novel. Uh, Martin is able to do so much in a, in a very small space of, of time in the book. It takes place uh, over an evening, uh, but also in the span of a book. It's not a very large book. And um, it's, it's, really a wonderful novel it's touching and it's um i don't want to get too much into it just say it's a great book the guest lecture by martin Riker. the other is the box by uh, mandy suzanne wong and that is from gray wolf press and that is um an incredible book uh, it's a feat of language um it really is about a box but set up in different situations um and it's told in many different voices and it's about capitalism it's about art it's about um, our relationship with each other and ourselves fantastic book the box. So the guest lecture in the box. My favorite book of the year, probably, um, or the one that really moved me, and I read it recently, was D.H. Lawrence's *The Rainbow*. Um, I've never been a big fan of D.H. Lawrence. I think I read *Lady Shatterley's Lover* like right out of high school, um, and then I saw a documentary, and I was like, I, I want to read *The Rainbow*, and it blew me away. I was thinking maybe I'll like it. I loved it. One of the best reading experiences I've had in, in a long time. Uh, it takes place over several generations of a, of a family uh, living um, really kind of in a rural part of England. Um, and you're watching uh, from the grandparents to the parents to the daughter. And it begins to focus on the daughter, um, her life and her trying to find agency. It's very much a feminist novel, but it's also a novel about the, the rapid um, introduction of industry into England. So you start with this rural um, backdrop and you uh, you watch as these changes happen and unlike these huge family epics where there's generations um it's almost like he's a filmmaker and he films for uh, a while on a, on a mother or a father and then he just lets the camera drift and suddenly you're you're focusing on the daughter so there's never any confusion about who is who you really can follow the family really well and the writing is he's considered a realist writer and it's a realist novel but at the same time there's something very mystical about it, and the language has these flights of fancy. They're just gorgeous, and I don't think you can read um, Deitch Lawrence's The Rainbow and not just kind of be in awe at the um, at the achievement that he he did writing this book. Women in Love, another novel by his, is um, I guess a sequel, so I do plan to read that, but um, The Rainbow, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's absolutely a stunning, majestic book. Uh, that's it. Thanks for, uh, for having me. Bye. All right. Thanks, Mark. That is exciting. Um, Paul, Mark Mark did send me a little note telling me that he'd read this one and asking if I had read The Rainbows Yeah, and encouraging it highly. You know, it does very effectively here again. So I've, I've definitely got that on my, my soon to read list. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. I've not read that one. He sent me a note about it as well. Um, and I, the couple of Lawrence's I've read, I've really loved. And I, I will just mm-hmm. say that his pick probably made our friend Dorian very happy because I know he is in Lauren's head through and through. So. The thing is, Dorian's going to hear this and be like, guys, 
why is it that when Mark brings it up, you're like, oh yeah, we should we should totally check out this uh, D. H. Lawrence fella. But you know, I've got I I basically advertise D. H. Lawrence every day on my 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 you know my that's, my avatar and you. <laughs> sorry, right. Dorian. I know. I Just did, another thing to compromise our relationship with Dorian. <laughs> I did tell Mark. I'll I'll be sure to. I mean, I I was gonna try to make it so that. Hey, Dorian, thanks for all the recommendations. I finally got to it, <laughs> but now the cat's out of the bag. So oh, that's right. That's funny. <laughs> all right. Well, the the next uh, uh, sent in from from a listener, uh, Jerry Faust. Uh, Jerry, I, I always love getting emails and and um, feedback from Jerry. We shared it on our last episode too. Um, but here's what he has to say. He says, "I hope this email finds you both." Well, as the end of 2023 approaches rapidly, my favorite fiction read this year was Magda Zsabó's Abigail, published in Len Rix's translation from the Hungarian by NYRB Classics in January 2020. This novel is a real page-turner. It's a boarding school novel in which the protagonist, Gina, is highly sheltered, but nevertheless living through the most consequential history of the 20th century. It's also a buildings roman in which Gina gradually comes of age and discovers that the world is not what it seems, I highly recommend this book. Um, this is actually another one of Magda Shabo books that I have not read. I think it's the one that's on the list for next year's NYRB Women 24. I think you're right. So Yeah, I haven't read it either. Um, but based on the other books of hers that I've read, I have no reason to doubt his high recommendation because she's right. just an amazing writer. That's great. Thank you, Jerry. All right. And we've got one more audio submission for this uh, this particular episode, our good friend Ben O'Connell, uh, who joined us to talk about, you know, why do we read fiction um, and often is giving us really good recommendations that are uh, not in our, you know, not on our typical where we look for for books like horror books and things like that. So very much appreciated. Yeah. Uh, ben, take it away. Thanks again, Paul and Trevor, for the Mooks and the Gripes. You've given me a lot of good listening in 2023. I wish I could say my reading was as consistent. I had a lot of slumps this year, and again and again, I turned to genre fiction to pull myself out. One book was older, David Rosenbaum's unusual 1993 hard-boiled novel, Zadik, interpolates a story of Napoleonic-era shtetl life into a storyline that takes place amidst sectarian Hasidic rivalries in Brooklyn. But most were newer books. The events of James Kestrel's ambitious police procedural, Five Decembers, span the Pacific Ocean and the duration of World War II. Australian novelist Jane Harper's The Lost Man is a gut punch of a book set in the remotest outback where getting stranded means certain excruciating death. Adelaide Henry, the protagonist of Victor Laval's excellent new horror novel Lone Women, also navigates a forbidding landscape as she homesteads early 20th century Montana alone except for a deadly secret in her trunk. The Strange by Nathan Ballingrud reads something like True Grit, rewritten by Ray Bradbury as a science fantasy novel, provided moments of wonder and terrible awe that I rarely experience anymore as an adult reader. And I especially want to highlight March's End by Daniel Polanski. Generations ago, the Harrow family discovered they could move between our world and the March, a fantastical land filled with anthropomorphic animals and plants, sentient toys and anima, 
and a myriad more strange creatures. Now the latest generation of Harrows, already fractured as a family and struggling as individuals, learn the end has come for the march. It's a perfect novel for those who have grown weary of both standard fantasy tropes and cynical reactions to standard fantasy tropes. All right. Well, another another one of those that's gonna, you know, take me a few minutes to to marshal into the show notes, but I yeah. definitely do appreciate it. <laughs> well worth the cheat. And I will say that uh, Nathan Ballingrud, who he mentioned The Strange, I read that book and really liked it. And he's another one that has made my top list in the past with his wonderful collection, North American Lake Monsters. So anybody who's not familiar with Nathan Ballingrud, I would highly recommend that they check him out and just want to echo what Ben had to say about that book. Nice. Paul, should we should we do one more, um, you know, written submission for this episode? One more. Let's do All one right. more. Yeah, this is a great one too from our friend Padma. She says, "Hey, Paul and Trevor, the book that I read fairly recently that I enjoyed, but that also made me feel other things. More on that later. Is Barbara Trepito's Brother of the More Famous Jack. It is a coming of age novel that's bursting with life. Has a great sense of style and charm. Doesn't shy away from painful topics, and there are lines in it that are really funny." Not going to lie, there were times when I felt like shaking the protagonist, Catherine, and there were times when I was either confounded or just failed to understand how Catherine could react so little or not at all. But one of the things I really liked was that she and everyone in the book really accepted situations, and some of those situations were awkward or painful. The other book that I'm currently reading with slash to my daughter is Alfred Olivant's Bob, Son of Battle, The Last Gray Dog of Kenmere, in an NYRB children's book edition, a new version by Lydia Davis. It is perfect for the holidays and to slow read with my six-and-a-half-year-old daughter. We are still only a few chapters in, but we look forward to reading about Bob and his antics and his growing up and his heroic doings when we pick up reading in the evening. There are some places where I modify slash skip the story a bit, a father beating up his son or Scottish people being painted poorly in this very English book, but overall, it is a great book for a dog-loving kid. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Padma. I'm glad she mentioned the, the children's wing of NYRB because mm-hmm. I think we've brought them up from time to time, but they do such a great job. So does Archipelago. Some of these publishers that we mentioned often have these other little branches that mm-hmm. we maybe don't touch on quite as often, but um, I'm glad that that got brought up. Those sound like great choices. Well, and yeah, I feel, I feel like we probably should put our eyes out there a little bit more often. Uh, some of the NYRB children's collections, uh, you know, they're often older books, but they're, they, publish them in these hardback editions that are really just fun, various sizes. So they get all wonky on your shelves in a fun way. And I've loved reading some of those to my kids over the years. So thanks so much for bringing that back to mind. It's been a while since I have. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, Paul, our last ones for this episode, your number six read of the year, please. All right, here we go. My number six read of the year is Gentleman Overboard by Herbert Clyde Lewis. Um, This is a book I read back in April, and it's another great example of just how grateful I am for our bookish community online. I don't think there's any chance that I or probably a lot of other people would have ever heard about this one if it wasn't for that community. And in particular, I told you he'd come up again, our friend Brad Bigelow. Um, He runs the wonderful Neglected Books website and he basically single-handedly kind of helped drag this book back into the public eye a, a couple of years ago. 
Um, and then even after that, I continued to hear about it from other friends online, including, you know, Simon Thomas and Cagsy of Cagsy's Bookish Ramblings and, and many others. And so finally, I, I got myself together and decided to give it a read. And I'm so glad I did. Um, as the name implies, this is the story of a man named Henry Preston Standish. And he is on a boat and he slips on a grease spot on the boat and falls off this passenger ship into the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And the rest of the book basically just consists of him trying to stay afloat and survive as he's just treading water and kind of just hoping for recovery. Um, But as he's doing that, we're kind of sprinkled with him reflecting on his life. And so this book is, it's really hard to sum up because in many ways, not a whole lot happens, at least from a plot point of view. But in other ways, we get, you know, insights into his entire life. So, you know, again, I know I'm reading a lot of passages today, but this, the writing style of this book is just so wonderful that I think it would be a disservice if I didn't give people a quick glimpse. So this is pretty much right after he falls in. And it says, men of Henry Preston Standish's class did not go around falling off ships in the middle of the ocean. It just was not done. That was all. It was a stupid, childish, unmannerly thing to do. And if there'd been anybody's pardon to beg, Standish would have begged it. People back in New York knew Standish was, a, was smooth. His upbringing and education had stressed smoothness. Even as an adolescent, Standish had always done the right things. Without being at all snobbish or making a cult of manners, Standish was really a gentleman, the good kind, the unobtrusive kind. Falling off a ship caused people a lot of bother. They had to throw out life preservers. The captain and chief engineer had to stop the ship and turn it around. A lifeboat had to be lowered, and then there would be the spectacle of Standish, all wet and bedraggled, being returned to the safety of the ship with all the passengers lining the rail, smiling their encouragement, and undoubtedly later on offering him innumerable anecdotes about similar mishaps. Falling off a ship was much worse than knocking over a waiter's tray or stepping on a lady's train. It was even more embarrassing than the fate of that unfortunate society girl in New York who tripped and fell down a whole flight of stairs while making her grand entrance on the night of her debut. It was humiliating, mortifying. You cursed yourself for being such a fool. You wanted to kick yourself. When you saw other men committing these wretched buffoon's mistakes, you could not find it in your heart to forgive them. You had no pity on their discomfort. So as you can tell, it's kind of, it's got a funny side to it. But what is so interesting about this book is there is some introspection. There's a lot of character development, which is hard to believe in a book with this description. And there's some darkness too. Um, so as Brad put it in his review that kind of reintroduced this into the, the public eye, he says after he falls overboard, no one notices. Um, several passengers and crew members think they see him. But what with the rush of the day's tasks and a general inclination not to bring up unpleasant issues, no one says a thing about his absence until over 10 hours later. So that's kind of one of the interesting things is, as implied by the passage I read, he's almost like too polite to scream for help when he falls overboard. And a lot of the passengers, it's, it's a very interesting, like they're just going about their things and they're like, no, I think I saw him. You know, I, I'm pretty sure I saw him at lunch or whatever. And so by the time they figured out, a lot of time has passed. So like I said, much of this book just takes place within his minds and memories as he's treading water and waiting to be rescued. Um, and it's only like 120 pages long, but it's another one of those where you can't believe everything that gets packed into that. Um, so, you know, I'm so happy that Brad brought it back into the public eye and and it's available now in a beautiful edition from Boiler House Press. So I'd encourage everybody to pick up a copy if you haven't read it. This this book is just absolutely wonderful. I forget, have you read this one, Trevor? No, I haven't, but I've been, I need, 
to go and basically pick up all of the Boiler House presses mm-hmm. and line of books that Brad has been helping them, you know, kind of curate and put out um, for a couple of reasons. One, I trust his taste. I trust his expertise. And I'm just really excited about a lot of them. But for another, they, they need that support. You know, they, they need they need people to, to have the word out about this this series. And the uh, otherwise it could go away, you know, it could go away. It's just kind of an ancillary thing for, for Boiler House. And I think that everyone would like to keep it going. But, you know, uh, I, I would love to, to get my hands on each and every one of the ones of the series. But this is one I haven't even haven't picked up yet, but I yeah. would like to. Um, especially after you started reading it earlier in the year, I remember you bringing it up and thinking, Oh, oh I need I to get that. <laughs> Such a fascinating premise, but it's not gimmicky. Like it could have been, it, it is so well done. It's kind of echoing what others have said on this episode. It's amazing how some of these books can fall out of the public eye when in reality, they're so much better than a lot of the stuff that does come out, you know? So yeah, anybody who has some uh, holiday gift cards, gift certificates, money lying around, burn a hole in your pocket. This would be a great <laughs> one. And like you said, that press would be a wonderful one to support. So I would encourage mm-hmm. everybody to, to check it out for sure. All right. So my number six has already come up a little bit. Uh, it is The Feast by Margaret Kennedy. Oh, sorry uh, to spoil it. No, no worries. This is from, you know, the... The, the reissue was what I read it's from McNally editions mm-hmm. that you brought up earlier. I mean, that book is so beautifully produced. Oh my word. I mean, I've been wanting to read this book for some time. Um, I think I heard about it on backlisted and started looking into it. And then I'm like, wait, McNally editions is publishing it. and look at what their book looks like. So I just waited until I was able to get it and couldn't have read it at a more perfect, uh, time. Um, It takes place over a holiday by the sea in Cornwall in the summer of 1947. And after a short prologue, I'll talk about it in a minute, it goes back to Saturday, you know, when everyone kind of first is starting to arrive at this little seaside hotel. Um, And then it goes on to Sunday, Monday, uh, all leading up to this kind of tragedy that we've already heard about from the prologue. And so I thought, well, I'm going to be here the same days. I'm going to start it on Saturday and each day read that section while I was on my own little holiday by, you know, the sea in, in a way. It was awesome. I really loved doing it that way. It was so fun to look forward to the next day's uh, uh, chapters. And I loved the book. I mean, the the premises and it starts out uh, with a little prologue where we we go to the aftermath of a tragedy and a reverend is, is preparing a eulogy for a memorial service for those who perished when the cliffs surrounding this hotel fell onto it, killing everybody who was inside of it. And you can't, you know, the bodies are still there. They're irretrievable. So it's just a memorial service. Some of the residents survived. Seven have died. And we don't know who survived. We don't know who died until we get basically to the very end, but we get to know these people. We see their back and forth. We see, you know, I mean, it's it's a great hotel novel. You know, that, that Jackie, uh, when we talked with her about hotel novels, she brought up uh, where you just meet a bunch of different people from various slices of life. You know, you've got people who work at the hotel, people who have come very snootily. You've got people who are 
you know, super proper and religious and others who are not. And, you know, just mixing them all together, there are all kinds of things that happen. But underlying it all is this sense of they can't all make it. Which ones are going to die? And the thing that's uncomfortable is you're like, okay, since I already know some are going to die, which ones do I want it to be? And that's just a little bit of an uncomfortable feeling, you know, like I get to pick and choose here. Mm-hmm. Let's get rid of this person, this person and that person. And these others, they have passed the test for me. They can, they can live on. Uh, but it's so well-written in, in a variety, from a variety of different characters perspectives, as well as, you know, one of them does it through letters. So you get to read those letters, just very good. And if you do have the chance to read it, um, in a summer holiday kind of setting where you start it on Saturday and, you know, read a page, you know, or a chapter a day as you go through your, your holiday. I highly recommend it. If you don't get that chance, read it anyway. It's a, it's a very, very good, good book. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I love that you did that project. That's a really fun way to do it. I did not read it in that manner. And I read it after you did based on your recommendation and would just echo what you said. It's, it's a wonderful book. It's really interesting. Like you said, it's almost, it's not a murder mystery, but it has some of those elements. Like you said, of, it's like, it's not a whodunit because you know what happened, but it's, it still has aspects of that mystery <laughs> of like, who, like you said, who's going to make who it? Who deserves it? Who deserves <laughs> it? Because a lot of the analysis I've read about it, like different characters are kind of representative of, of the different sins, you know, sloth and envy and lust and different things. So there's like some strong mm-hmm. characters. It's not so simple. It's not like a morality tale or anything right. like that. But there are these interesting aspects that kind of make, add some complexity and some, like you said, some gray areas where you feel very conflicted and weird knowing that you're kind of rooting for certain people to make it versus other people. So yeah, I'm so glad. Another one that was <laughs> would have been on my honorable mentions list. So we continue to cover each other's backs. That's good. Good deal. Good deal. Yeah. Well, we will be back with our five through one here in a couple of weeks, just the, just right after Christmas, you know, kind of some post Christmas listening. And if you're, if you're getting some gift cards or things like that, maybe we'll give you some suggestions for how to spend them. Exactly. Uh, and if not us, some of the many wonderful right. listeners who are chipping in with all these great suggestions that are also adding to my list for post Christmas. <laughs> all right. Well, and if you hear this, you still have uh one day to enter the Dalkey Archive giveaway. So go ahead and do that. Um, otherwise, Paul, I, I wondered if you wouldn't mind maybe for just a couple minutes, not a kind of lengthy thing, at the end of this episode, of just a general feel of how was your reading year of 2023? In in general terms, broad strokes, what yeah. what, what comes to mind as you as you reflect beyond the books, you know, the, the favorites and all of that, what, mm-hmm. what comes to mind? I was thinking about that as I was doing this list. That's one of the things I love so much about this exercise is, is it does give you a chance to kind of look back over your year. And I think we've talked about it before. Sometimes you're like, geez, I can't believe I read that this year. I would have sworn it was three years ago. And then other ones, it's <laughs> like, did I really read that clear back in January? I feel like I just read it. So it's always interesting. This has been an interesting reading year for me. I, I would say it has been a very in some ways, uneven reading year. I have had surges of great books and pockets of books that I've really enjoyed. I've had some other periods where I, I wouldn't say a slump, but maybe not necessarily as um, compelling as other sections. Um, but overall, looking back, I would say one of the things that's kind of interesting this year is I think I've read a lot more relatively new books this year than I typically do. 
I've read a few classics and I've read, you know, like through the NYRB women project and, and through the um, Joseph and his brothers, it's not like I haven't read some classics, but I would say generally speaking, this has been a year where my reading has been a little bit different than it would normally be, which is not mm-hmm. a bad thing at all. It's, it's actually been very rewarding in many ways, but I, for example, I haven't necessarily gotten to like one other than Thomas Mann. I haven't necessarily gotten to any of like the classics like I often do where I'll read a Dickens or even a Trollope. I didn't get to that this year. So I don't know. It's been an interesting year. I, I, I would say it's been a, a very good year, but also one where I don't know that it would be representative of a normal reading year for me, if that makes sense. Hmm. What forces do you think influenced that shift? Was yeah, it the that's... podcast or your judging or just where you're at in life uh, just yeah, to get to I some of them? Say... Or, or, or was it because all year you were reading Joseph and his brothers? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that um, I'll give a little bit of a spoiler. I debated adding that one to my top 10 only because of just, it was you accomplished biggest it. influence. Yeah. I mean, it was like survivor's uh, syndrome or whatever they call that were, but it is, if it was listing 10 books that had the biggest impact on my reading year, that one would have been on the list hands down. I was, I will say it was no magic mountain for me, which was my top book of the year a couple of years ago. I mean, this book is, is great in the true sense of the word. It deserves to be read by everyone, but you know, I would not say that it was a favorite book of the year. Uh, Brad and Ben O'Connell, I think, out of the group that started our brave mission, maybe some would say our stupid mission to read it over the course of the year. Brad, Ben, and I, I think were the only ones who came out the other end having read the entire thing. So it was it was grueling in some ways, but really good. But anyway, yeah, just I, I would say it's somewhat a couple of those big projects like that and the the judging have kind of influenced my reading to some degree, which is a very good thing. It's, it's kind of what I like about reading year after year is it doesn't have to always be the same. And, and in some ways you can kind of get some value in trying some new and different things. So I would say that that was probably the biggest influence on why things were a little bit different mixed in with a little bit of, it's been a, an odd year with just, like I've said, like some changes with our son going to college and just, it's been a little bit of a tumultuous year in some ways. So I think that probably has led to, you know, some different when, when you're looking at the shelf, you know, in a certain year, certain books call out to you versus other ones. So yeah, kind of a, a mix of all those things that you said, but yeah, again, just yeah. to echo though, a very solid, good year, just not really representative of, of maybe what I've done in other years. How about you? What would you say about your reading year? So it's been a very good reading year. And uh, I guess here's another plug for NYRB Women 23 and excitement for 24, because that had a pretty big influence over not just my reading of those books, you know, where I'm reading the 23rd book, we'll finish it tomorrow, and then we'll start the 24th book. I'm almost done with the whole year. But, and so, yeah, that's a pretty big chunk of what I've read this year, but only about a quarter uh, of, of what I ended up reading. Um, I also participated in my wife's library um, challenge, and I just filled out the whole thing. I got blackout. We only needed to read 25 to get the cool, like, uh, you know, nerd mug, nice. um, reading nerd mug, or Salem Bibliophiles, I think what we call it. But, you know, <laughs> it, it's got glasses on it and things like that. It's fun. Um, so I'll be getting that prize, but I finished the whole thing. I got a blackout on it. And so that was a an influence as well because it forced me sometimes to like none of the books I'm reading are going to fit that that particular category. I need to go and find one. 
And so that was really nice. But the, going back to NYRB Women 23, the the reason that had such an impact is it, it, it forced me to read slowly and in chunks every day rather than think oh, I'm, I'm starting this book and need to finish it before I start another one or then I get distracted and never finish it because I feel like I've gotten away from it, which uh, is, you know, two things that I never quite knew how to get around. But reading a little bit every day made it very doable. And so I started reading more things that way. And that led me to reading bigger books this year than maybe I would otherwise have read, including a reread of the brothers Karamazov that I don't know if I would have attempted and maybe not, maybe I would have attempted it, but then failed to finish it uh, because of the pressure to read other things, but doing it a little bit every day just worked for me. So Kim taught me a new way to approach, not just these reading groups, but reading in general which I've found very helpful. Um, but also it, it stretched my reading. You know, there were a lot of, um, you know, there's nonfiction collections of short stories. I always read various things in these, but that was just kind of a rich, a rich aspect to the year. And so I'm very excited for next year. And, um, you know, again, thankful for the things I learned in, in reading that project, because it, it made me not so worried about books that otherwise I might think I need to save this for when I have time. But saying, oh, I've got time. I can I can make time every day. It'll take time to finish it. You know, um, one of the one of the books that I'll bring up next time took me several months to to read through that way. But I loved it. You know, I loved it, loved it, loved it. So more on that later. But my my year has been a really good one because of that. And and also, lastly, I mean, I brought up that I reread the Brothers Karamazov, but I reread a lot of books this year. And I'm not a big rereader in general in the past, but both the the library challenge had a book, you know, reread a favorite and um, thinking, oh, I can read some of these to my kids, some of my favorites, you know, I can, you know, they're getting older and I can do that. And, um, and then, you know, just because I'd already read some of the books on the NYRB women 23 list, I thought, well, I could just not read them, but I decided to do it. And I'm very glad that I did. It's been a very good year for rereads, for bigger reads, for stretching. And I hope I can carry that momentum into 2024. But, you yeah. know, I think I will. I think I'm in a pretty good place. Yeah, I love that. I, I agree. And I'm so glad that you mentioned again, like we can't overstate the value of the NYRB women. That is just such an amazing project. Kim has done such a masterful job of curating it. Cause like you said, it's such an interesting mix that she's chosen. And one, one of the things I like about it, I haven't been quite as good as you in reading every single one, but there are the, the big ones, the, the ones that have been calling out to me for a long time from my shelves that I finally have a reason to read. But there's also ones that like, even from a publisher I love as much as NYRB Classics, there are those ones that when you're scanning the shelf, maybe your eyes just kind of skim over a couple of the, the titles. And some of those where you have a reason to pull it off the shelf and really engage with it have been so rewarding. Yeah. So I've really appreciated yeah. that too, whether it's, you know, like diaries or just something that maybe if you were looking may not be the first thing that would call out to you. But then once you start digging in and realizing the, the depth and, and the beauty and the power of some of these books, it just reminds you not to overlook or neglect even the, the so-called lesser works of some of these <laughs> authors. So, Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm glad it's been such a good year. It has been a wonderful reading year. And as always, these conversations with you and with all of our 
listeners are just so inspiring. It, it always gets me so excited to think about even right now, I'm just already thinking about what I'll be reading later today and later this week and over the upcoming break. So just as I always say, just thank you so much for these conversations with you and for everyone out there. It's, it's just been a magical experience this whole year. I agree. I echo everything you said. And I'm glad we're not quite done with our best books of the year. No. So join us in a couple of weeks in that lull between Christmas and New Year's. Um, for, for some people, I know for some people it does not, and it can be uh, kind of a difficult time. But I hope wherever these find you, um, these provide some of that just excitement of reading, the peace of reading, and of, of communicating about all of that. So we'll be back here shortly. Have a good one. See you, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.